Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We've been studying uh, Deuteronomy and we've been looking at it this year through the lens of uh, Dr. Micha Goodman, who has uh, given a series of lectures. Uh, the site is Tikva. That is the site on which he gives these lectures. Um, and I don't know how, but I think for some reason, I think God loves me this year and knows that it's been a challenging time. And so she has lined up all of his lectures with the first triennial portion of each of our Shabbos readings. And it happened again this week. So thank you. Um, so <laughs> Micha gave a lec- one of his lectures. There are eight lectures in total. Um, last time we did God's house and where God lives. That was lecture number four. Lecture number five is politics and power. And he talks about the monarch. He talks about the monarchy in ancient Israel. And that's exactly our Torah portion. And it's in the first third uh, of this year's Torah portion. So once again, Micha's teaching lined up uh, really nicely with um, what we were going to be uh, studying. So the, the Parsha that we're in is actually Shoftim. And the word Shofet means judge. And so the Shofet would have been the magistrate. It would have been where you took locally all of your disputes. So between two Israelites, if there was a dispute, you went to the city gate where the Shofet, where the Shof team sat, where the judges sat. And the judges would sit and adjudicate, and, th- and that was binding. Once we have the law of Deuteronomy and there's a centralization of all of these branches of, of government, once that is centralized, now um, the, and the priest would decide if, the, if it was too hard for the judge or there was a lack of evidence or both parties claim the same thing and there's no way to prove one or the other right or wrong, it would often go to the priest. Now for things to go to the priest, it had to come to the central priesthood in Jerusalem. So there would have been some, I imagine, some concern on people's part about how they could get fair, um, fair litigation. Um, and it was going to be much more of a schlep for them than it had been previously. So Shoftim Vishotrim, so judges and officers you are to appoint for yourselves. So this is Deuteronomy talking about, again, the judicial branch. We're going to take a look at the, uh, not the judicial branch, um, except to say that the qualifications for a judge are different in, um, in other places in Torah than it is from, from Deuteronomy. And in other places in the Torah, and I think I mentioned this before, um, judges are supposed to be people who kind of get it, you know, people who have experience, people who, who know what they're doing in the world. And in Deuteronomy, though, the, the qualifications for a judge are about wisdom, which is code, right, for being wise is knowing the law. Being wise is knowing Deuteronomy. So the qualifications for the Deuteronomist are for a judge, they need to be smart and they need to know how to decode this law. So once again, every branch of government comes under the law. So here we are, we're in Safaria, for those of you who 
were on earlier when we were talking about this website. This is Safaria, and you can find the entire text of the Torah. You can find the Talmud. You can find the Mishnah. You can find all kinds. Really, the corpus of Jewish sacred literature is here uh, on Safaria, and it is free, um, and it is a fantastic resource. All right, so we are at Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. After you've, if after, actually it's in Hebrew, it's when, um, you have entered the land, so kitavo, you have to come, so you have to come to the land, um, and you have inherited it, Right, so you you essentially take it as your inheritance. You've possessed it, and you have settled it. So these are the some of the rabbis, some of the commentators want to say these are the preconditions for there being a king. It's so that the Israelites have to fulfill these things. They have to come to the land. They have to take it as possession, and they have to settle it. Ve'amarta, and then you say. I will place over me a melech, a king, like all of the nations around me. So this is the singular. So this is the singular Israel will say this. Then you'll be free to set a king over yourself. But, says the Deuteronomist, we saw this in other places with the Deuteronomist, where can you bring your sacrifices? The place where God chooses to place God's name. It's going to be the same thing with the king. You may place a king over yourself, but it has to be one asher yivchar Adonai Elohechabo that God has chosen. Be sure to set over yourself one of your own people. You must not set a foreigner over you, one who is not. And the English, I don't like this translation um, because it's literally right. But it misses the point of the Hebrew. What does the Hebrew say? Who who does it have to be? Someone that is achicha, your brother. So it is very clear in Deuteronomy that the king can't be somebody asher lo achicha that isn't your brother. So Micha is going to come back to this language, and he thinks this is critically important. Um, that the Deuteronomist is doing this on purpose, using this language on purpose. It, it could have just said an Israelite, right? But it doesn't. Um, it says, Asher lo achicha. It can't be somebody who's, not, it's the double negative. It can't be somebody who's not your brother. All right. Moreover, what are the laws regarding, we're going to get some restrictions now. We're going to get some laws regarding the king. Rak lo yarbe lo susim. He can't have a ton of horses. V'lo or send people back to Egypt, Lema'an Harbotsus, to add to his horses. Since God has warned you, you must not go back that way again. Nashim, and he will not have many wives, lest his heart go astray, nor shall he amass a lot of silver and gold to excess. And when he is seated on the royal throne, he shall have a copy of this teaching written for him on a scroll by the Levitical priests. This teaching means Deuteronomy, the Torah. This Torah, ha-Torah hazot. You see that in verse 18? 
Hatorah Hazot. This Torah means Deuteronomy. Let it remain with him and let him read it all his life so that he may learn to revere Adonai his God, to observe faithfully every word of Hatorah Hazot, this teaching, as well as these laws. Thus, he will not act haughtily toward his fellows or deviate from the instruction to the right or the left, to the end that he and his descendants may reign long in the midst of Israel. Amy, can I ask a question? Sure, Bert. May I? Uh, a little confused. At the beginning, it says that God will choose the king. And then it says, well, when you choose the king, he has to be one of your brethren, and he has to be this, and he has to be that, as if they were choosing the king. So which is it, or is it both? Well, so it's both. So remember Shmuel? Right? Remember Samuel? Mm-hmm. And Saul? Right? So it's, it's the prophet who hears from God who it is who's supposed to be chosen as king. Right? So, so God, it's God who chooses, but God speaks through God's prophets. But then if God chooses, why tell the people what the qualifications of the king have to be as if they were deciding who it was going to be? That, that's where I got confused. Yeah. Well, so Seems to me to be going in two different directions. Right. So, you know, it's a little, it's a little forced that it's... So when we say the place where God will choose to make God's house, who chose where God's house was going to be? David. <laughs> right? Like, David chose Jerusalem for lots of reasons that we don't have time to go into now. David chose Jerusalem, the holy site of the Jebusites. If you're going to make a new holy place, you better make it the place where the other people's holy place was. So he, he makes Jerusalem his capital, he, he, and the temple's going to be built in Jerusalem. That is David's decision. The Deuteronomist, of course, is going to say, that is the place where God has chosen to place God's name. All right. So what about this business of the monarchy? All right. So in the ancient, so now I'm teaching from Micha, in the ancient Near East, um, as in lots of places after that, in the ancient Near East, um, the monarchy was was the was the model, right for for ruling. So you had kings of empires, you had kings of city states, you had kings of very small territories, you had big kings and little kings. So big kings were the conquering kings. Little kings were the vassal kings who served the conquering king. So you might have the king of an empire, but you could still have the king of a territory underneath that empire, right? So, I mean, and we, we see this in European history. It's not, it's not foreign to us, really. Um, but, but in many places in the ancient world, that king's rule was absolute, right? So if you think of Pharaoh... Pharaoh was not just the king. Pharaoh is also a god. So when Pharaoh gives a law, it is, it is considered as if the, the god has given the law. So this is how it was in many places in the ancient Near East. Often the king was the high priest. Um, and so there was this mix you know, of, of authority. 
but, but the king had absolute authority. So how does Deuteronomy, how does the Deuteronomist think about monarchy? Not Torah, because we have other kings in other parts of Torah. How does the Deuteronomist think about monarchy? Think about around the time of King Josiah. Um, The monarchy in in Tanakh, in in, um, the monarchy in Torah itself, the five books hardly appears at all, right? Because Genesis doesn't really deal with it, except neighboring kings that Abraham deals with or whatever. Um, Exodus is the story of it coming out of Egypt. So we have the king there, but just the Egyptian king. It doesn't talk about Israel's relationship to Israel having a king, right? Leviticus is all about the priesthood and all about the laws of the Mishkan and, and how Israel was to function as a cult. So we really don't, and in numbers, they're still schlepping through the desert. We don't really have a lot of conversation at all in Torah about the king. So Micha argues this is already a statement about how Israel felt about the monarchy, that there was already this sense that the monarchy is, is not so important. It, it isn't what you see in the neighboring uh, uh, countries, and it's not even talked about really in Torah much at all. When we get to um, Leviticus, um, and there's offerings, sin offerings made, Micha points out that Leviticus talks about a nasi, a prince, like a head of one of the tribes sinning, and it talks about what happens when a priest sins. What is the protocol for dealing with that? Not one mention in Leviticus of what happens when a king sins. So when you start looking at who's most imp- when the important people sin, here's here's what you do. The king, there's no no mention of the king. No king is mentioned. It complete Leviticus completely ignores the existence of the king, and we know that during the priesthood, of course, there was a king. Right. As soon as you have Israel as a nation state, you have a king, you have David, you have Saul, and then you have David. So, um, so, so Le- the Levitical material P is written way after that. So, so there was a king, but Leviticus doesn't seem to care much at all about that. When it talks about who you can't speak badly about in Leviticus, you are not allowed to speak uh, badly about powerful people, and it names some of them. Again, no mention of the king. Uh, and, um, and so, like, so Micha points out from the point of absence, the fact that Leviticus really doesn't deal very much or care very much about the monarchy. All right. So we're back at verse 14 of chapter 17. When you come to the land and you conquer it and you settle it, right, then you may appoint a king. So Rambam, Maimonides, wants to read this as a positive commandment. You will then appoint a king. That God is saying, you should do this. And that's what Deuteronomy is saying. Or is it what Torah says when it says, I want to put over me a king like everybody else around me. So or is an imitation of the nations around them. Um, So there seems to be... uh, some discussion in the commentaries about whether or not God even wants this to happen. So some want to say that God allows it. And Rambam wants to say that God actually says, set for yourself a, a king, that, that that positive statement is, is actually a positive commandment. He has to be an Israelite. You want a king like the nations around you 
fine, but he can't be from the nations around me. And this is where um, Micha points to the language of that pasuk, that verse that says, it can't be somebody that's lo achicha. It can't be somebody that's not your brother. And Micha says this language is used by the Deuteronomist on purpose. And it's used on purpose to break down the idea of the hierarchy of the king. Don't you ever forget, Israelites, that he's achicha. He's your brother. So unlike some things that lift the king above everybody else, what, what's that called in Latin like that? Um, that the king is you know, granted his authority by God. Um, I forget what it's called, um, but there's some fancy history term for that. So um, that the king is somehow inherently different. Divine right of kings. Yeah, something like that. So that, you know, it's because, it's because this person has something that God has given them that you don't have that they get to be royalty and you're not. So Micha says the way this verse is constructed, the way the Deuteronomist constructs this law is to make it very clear to the Israelites, this is Achicha, this is your brother, he's one of you, in a way to start to, to really be clear about the fact that that hierarchy is, is random, if you will, in some ways. Of course, God has something to do with it. We know that. Um, but, that but there's nothing inherently different about the king other than he's chosen to be set right in that uh, position. And so that this using of the metaphor of the brother um, is really pointing to, um, for Micha, the, the political philosophy, if you will, of Deuteronomy. So then, then we look at the verse that says that he can't have a lot of horses, and he can't have a lot of wives, and he can't have a lot of gold and silver. Okay, so whenever we have studied this before, and we have, um, when we've studied this before, we're talking about the fact that Deuteronomy is very clear that there shouldn't be excess that the king should not be tempted to live a lavish lifestyle. That yes, the king is entitled to some things that the rest of us are not entitled to, but that he should not be um, allowed to, to amass fortunes that are going to distract him from being an agent, if you will, of the law. And ruling the people should be, and being fair and wise and all of those things, um, that should be his focus. And if he gathers too much wealth, then it, it's gonna, he's going to want to be on his yacht uh, instead of dealing with the people and policy. Um, if he has too many wives, he's going to want to be doing what one does with them instead of uh, working on public policy. <laughs> um, and of course, the other part of having many wives that we're all used to hearing. <laughs> yeah, I figured Bert would pick up on that. Um, and so the other thing that um, we're used to about wives is that not only will they tempt him, you know, just physically tempt him away from what he's supposed to be doing, but of course, they will tempt him to worship their gods. And we see that this turns out to be true, right? Solomon, right, had... Um, all kinds of stuff in the temple that shouldn't have been there, right, um, to appease his wives. So, so there's a concern about um, Avodah Zarah. There's a concern about going over to worshiping um, 
gods other than yod heh vav this, this is how we're used to thinking of these laws in Deuteronomy. It's how I have always thought of them. Micha Goodman helped me see them a little bit differently. Micha says, what are wives really about? Why do kings and queens marry the people they marry? Is it a love match? Rarely. Why, why do kings and queens marry the people they marry? Yeah, they're making political alliances. And so Micha says, Deuteronomy's coming to say, your king can't make too many alliances with too many players because that makes your king too powerful. If your king has all these alliances, <laughs> Brian says, it's good to be king. Indeed. Indeed. So um, if you have all these political alliances, your king can become so powerful that he actually, right, is, is a power in the region. And, and that is a tipping of the, of the political power that Deuteronomy frowns on. De- Deuteronomy does not want that. Deuteronomy does not want the Israelite king to have an empire, right, in, in the region by creating all of these political alliances. What's with the horses? Why can't he have a bunch of horses? Presumably the groomsmen will take care of the horses. We're worried about the horses being a distraction. What Micha says is that um, he can't have too many horses because horses were used, what were they mostly used for in the ancient world? Warfare, right? Pulling chariots. And so if you have a ton of horses. What, it's, what this prohibition really is about, says Micha, is it's saying the king can't amass a huge army. Because if the king does that, what could happen? If the king has a huge army, the king could turn that army on you. Right? So, of course, if there's a battle that has to happen, you would rally horses from all over the kingdom, but you can't have tanks and a whole collection of artillery sitting in your backyard that you're ready to whip out the minute the people displease you. Um, And so Micha says, this is another way that Deuteronomy is controlling the power of the king and making sure that the Israelite king um, doesn't get too big for his royal britches. Um, So let's see. All right. So gold and silver. It seems like, okay, so he shouldn't be attached to wealth. He shouldn't be chasing wealth. He shouldn't be concerned and distracted all the time by amassing wealth. Micha says that's, that's, that's not the end of it. Again, Deuteronomy is curbing the power of the king. What power is Deuteronomy curbing here by saying he can't have a lot of gold and silver? Deuteronomy is curbing the power of the king to tax the people. If the king can't just get as much gold and where's the king going to get gold and silver unless you're conquering a neighboring territory and it's booty of war. Okay, that's fine. But if, if it's not that, where does a king get gold and silver in order to have all of this wealth and to build his palace and to build a swimming pool at Masada? Have y'all seen the palace at Masada? Have you seen the steam room and the sauna and the pool and the water cisterns? Remember when we saw that and we saw how expensive that was to make? Remember, that palace was not inhabited. That was the, if I have to escape, 
I want to go to a really nice place palace, right? So for Herod. So that's, that's the kind of wealth that, that if you're focused on collecting that kind of wealth, then it could be a distraction for sure. But think of the gold and silver that it costs to build the palace at Masada and maintain it. They had to have a full staff. They had to keep growing crops. They had to put water in the pool. So the am- amazing amount of wealth, gold and silver, it took to, to maintain a place like Masada. Think about that all over Israel. The king could have that all over the country. That kind of money, where does it come from? If you're not Rome conquering the world and taking its soldiers and its booty, if, if you're not, and that wasn't ancient Israel, ancient Israel was this tiny little you know, kingdom between the huge power of Mesopotamia and the huge power of Egypt. Israel was never a world player, never. So where does a tiny little country like that, where where the Deuteronomist is sitting and writing, um, the school of Deuteronomy is writing these, these regulations, where do you get that kind of money? You get it from taxing the people. And Deuteronomy is very clear that that is not okay is what Micha Goodman is suggesting. That by saying he can't amass a lot of gold and silver, it's saying you can't use your attachment to a lavish lifestyle to tax the people. And by the way, that's exactly what happened with Solomon. That is exactly what happened. Solomon overtaxed the people for his building projects. And that was, guess what? The end of the United Monarchy. The end. A hundred years. That's it. It broke apart into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah because the people were overtaxed. This is written way long after that, right? This is written around 622. The northern kingdom of Israel fell 100 years before. So this is... This this is a remaking, a reworking of all of the systems that already existed. The judiciary, the monarchy, prophecy, the priesthood. These all existed and had been function and had been functioning in in Israel for a really long time. This is a reform. So the Deuteronomist is saying that didn't work. We we saw that <laughs> a when Solomon did all these things, the kingdom broke in half. And then Israel became weak. And Israel fell to uh, the Neo-Syrian, the Neo-Syrians. Okay. So the first place we have any real conversation in Torah about the monarchy, about political power, um, Goodman points out that when we have a real discussion about that, the discussion is about limiting that power. It isn't about, yay, get a king. Here's the colors he should wear. And when you have a coronation, this is what you should serve. And the palace should definitely be, like, nothing. The, the only conversation we get when we get a conversation about political power as concentrated in the hands of the king is a whole conversation about how that should be limited. Radically different from how other ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures saw the monarchy. 
And the monarchy, according to the Deuteronomist, can only be created once the country is established. What does that mean? So I, I hit it on the head sharply, right, to bring your attention to it. You have to get there. You have to take possession of the land and you have to settle it. Then you may appoint a king over yourselves. Why hit that over the head? Because Micha says this is to be very, very clear that you have a functioning society and that society chooses the king and empowers the king to have the role that he does. It is not that the king founds the society which is very common in the world surrounding ancient Israel, the king is seen as the one who founded the civilization that, you know, with the gods had the authority and the access to whatever it is to found this society. It's exactly the opposite that the society chooses the king and the society is governed by laws. And those laws include ways to put limits on the king and on what the king is allowed to do and what the king is allowed to acquire and how the king is allowed to um, develop, if you will, um, with, in the system of power in, in ancient Israel. So then we go to this writing of the book. And Brian, here's where I'm going to take issue a little bit with what you said in the chat is most people believe Zot HaTorah Zot is not a Torah. It is Deuteronomy. This instruction, right? We hear all over the Jewish world, a king had to write a Torah, a king had to write a Torah. No, the king had to cause to be written Torah Hazot, this instruction, meaning Deuteronomy. So that the king had to occupy himself with studying Deuteronomy, meaning your monarch had to be sort of, if not an expert, had to be extremely well-versed in the Constitution. This is the Constitution. This is the law. So what if your king has to cause, be caused a, a copy of all of the constitutional law of the United States to be written and then has to occupy themselves with that? So the King of England, the Queen of England, has to be reading the Constitution all the time. That's how Torah imagines you have a monarchy that works. Yes, Bert, a professor of constitutional law, at least well-versed in it, because the king is supposed to be reading it. So, um, so, so writing a book, so writing, the, the king has to be caused, okay, it's very hard. How do you take he feel Hebrew and make it English? The king has to cause a copy of the law to be written in front of the priests. What is this about? Why, why, why involve the priests in this? So rather than thinking, okay, this is how they get the, the king gets the hecture of the priests and, it, and it, it rises him in power, it's, Micha says it's the opposite. It's to show that the king is Davka, not a priest. Even the king has to go before the priests to have this copy of uh, Deuteronomy written. And it is a way for, um, for Deuteronomy to make sure that it is iterated 
over and over that the political power of the king is separate from religion. Prophecy remains one branch of religion, and the priesthood is another branch of religion. Those do not come under the power of the monarchy. It is the opposite. And what I think about is when you have the, the head of the church, who, you know, who crowns the king in Europe? The head of the church places the crown on the head. Why? Right? To show that, don't you think for a minute, king, queen, whoever you are, princess, don't you think for one second this happens without the approval of the church? So this is not that, but it, but it is saying, yeah, the king is not the priest. The king is not a Levite. The king is, is not in control of that branch of society, which is the, which is the religious branch. So the limited power that Deuteronomy places on the king, on the judges, on the priests, on prophecy, Micha Goodman says this, this is democracy, essentially, that the power originates with the people. And that is why it is so important that Deuteronomy says you will appoint a king for yourself it's clear that the king has not founded the society. It is clear that the king uh, is not elected by, alone by God, that, that the king is not a priest. All of these things or a prophet, That it is coming to suggest that the power of the monarchy is in the people. That and everybody is subject to Torah Hazot, this instruction. That's democracy, in a sense, or at least a, what do you call it, a, a constitutional monarchy. So Micha says, when you look at, you know, what is the king supposed to do? Okay, he can't have a big army. He can't have a lot of political alliances. He can't get, tax the people so that he has a bunch of palaces. Okay, well, well, what, 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 what does the king do? What does make the king so great? What does our king do? Does our king win a bunch of wars? No. Does our king build a bunch of monuments? No. What does our king do? Writes a book. This is the Jewish king. This is what the king is described as doing, is writing a book and reading it. Very much a Jewish king, right? But, but all tongue-in-cheek aside, that is a much different portrait of the king than, let's say, what Egyptian literature would have had to say at the same time about Pharaoh. All right. Chapter 17, verses 19 and 20. Let it remain with him, this copy of Deuteronomy, and let him read it all his life. Why? so that he may learn to be in awe of yud heh vav heh, to observe faithfully every word of this Torah, that, you, that he will observe faithfully every word of this teaching, as well as these laws. This way, he will not act haughtily towards his fellows or deviate from this Torah, this instruction, to the right or to the left, 
to the end that he and his descendants may reign long in the midst of Israel. So this is, this is what the king is supposed to do so that the king does not become proud and think that he's above everybody else. The king is always exposed to people who obey his orders, who do everything he wants, who anticipate what he wants, and they revere him. They stand in awe of him. This, Micha Goodman argues, Deuteronomy understands, and understands that it can change people in really terrible ways. Deuteronomy is very clear. It is here to remind the king that the king is just like everybody else. So I don't want to push it too far. I don't want to make too fine a point of it. Right, Bert? But okay, right? When you're surrounded by sycophants, when you're surrounded by people who say yes to you all the time, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, and don't argue with you and are afraid of you, right? Your eyes, both awe and fear, then Deuteronomy says, mm-hmm, that, that does not produce good result. Deuteronomy understands how someone like Trump can become worse than he was when he started. Because Deuteronomy understands that we're human. And human beings, when they have too much power, too many people saying yes to them, nobody confronting them, Deuteronomy understands that any one of us becomes less, just less of who we should be when that is the only thing we're exposed to all the time. And so the Deuteronomist is saying that the king is supposed to read Deuteronomy so that the king knows that there's something bigger that the king should be in awe of. Everyone's in awe of the king. Everyone's afraid of the, the power of the king. Well, the king needs to occupy himself with the study of this Torah so that he's in relationship constantly and reminded constantly that there's another king to whom the king owes his loyalty and on whose behalf the king serves the people. And that is, of course, the king of kings. Someone just wrote, absolute power corrupts absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Deuteronomy understands this and takes actions and and instructions to counter it. It's not just kind of, oh, oh, there seems to be an awareness. It like you shall you shall write the book of Deuteronomy, you shall write the constitution, and you will occupy yourself with it every day of your life, so that you come to revere the law and the giver of the law, which in this case, of course, is God. And that helps protect the king from the king's own hubris. So Micha then goes on to say, often the boldest statement made by a text is what the text doesn't say. After all this about the king, there's one sentence missing. Micha says, you get the king, you get his power, he writes a constitution, he studies the constitution, and what should come next in many other places, if you look at, you know, if we're talking about the monarchy and, 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 the, and the laws regarding the people and the monarchy and the different branches of government, he says, what often comes next is a sentence that says, and you shall obey the king. You shall obey the authority of the king. Micha says, it's nowhere here. It doesn't appear in Deuteronomy at all that you shall obey the king. You shall obey what? 
the law. You shall obey HaTorah Hazot, this Torah. So shall the king, so shall the priests, so shall the prophets, so shall everybody will obey HaTorah Hazot. This, he says, is a remarkable uh, omission and that he believes this is part of the point of Deuteronomy. Is it the monarchy is just one other branch of government? Um, usually, he says, religion is used to create stable politics. God told me to tell you that you're supposed to obey me, <laughs> right? The king can say, God said, y'all are supposed to do what I say. And he says, it's, very, it's made very clear, explicitly clear here, that is not the case. That nowhere does it say, I, God, am telling y'all, once you appoint a king, you need to do what the king says. It's the opposite, Micha goes so far as to say. The king is told to obey God, not to come to the people and say, God told me to tell y'all, y'all are supposed to do what I say. The king is not in control. The king is controlled by the book that controls all of us. The king is controlled by the law the law that all of us are subject to. And he, he argues this is nothing short of a political revolution in the ancient world. Judith Ubik has her hand up. There's, there's nothing mentioned either about inheritance of the kingship. Each, it's over and over. When the king dies, then you start all over and you elect a new king. So um, there is dynasty. So this is where Micah goes next. He says, so if we look at 1720, what is the power left to the king? How does the king, how does the king have real power? By giving up his power. By subjecting himself to Deuteronomy, we just saw, that's how, right, he will stay king. And his children will be king after him in the land. How do you... How do you make for a dynasty according to Deuteronomy? The king is only going to keep power as long as, he sub, sub, as long as he subjugates his own power to the Torah and to God. The, I, I mean, I don't know if it's irony exactly, but, but, like, but for Micha, he, he was very clear. Your son will become king after you only if you follow the laws, and only if you recognize the king of kings, then you will be king for a long time, and your sons will be king after you. As long as they follow the same laws. Exactly right. So only by giving up your power, according to Deuteronomy, do you keep your power. Again, a political revolution in the ancient world. George, are you just waving at me, or are you wanting to speak? Yes, uh, you, the king, as you kept saying, writes the book, the, the, the Torah. But if he writes the laws, as opposed to copying... A co- no, it's copying, it's copying, it's copying. Yes, writing, uh, writing, not making up, writing. I much prefer copying in, in the language rather than writing. Because All right, well, I'm just translating it from the Hebrew, George. The Hebrew says writing. He makes up all laws. She makes up all laws. He causes, right, this to be written down, meaning it's already here. Writing doesn't mean in Hebrew what we mean when we say writing the law. 
You don't write law in Hebrew. So I know what you're saying, but that's only in English. That confusion doesn't happen in the Hebrew. You can't write laws in Hebrew. It means physically writing the laws that already exist. Okay. It doesn't mean making them up. But I get, I get how in English that can be confusing. So, yeah. so for, from now on, when you translate this, you will always say copy. Okay, thank you. So I'll close with, um, with Micha, who says, he doesn't think it's an accident that our story of leaving Egypt and receiving Torah in the Midbar, Micha, does, Micha doesn't think it's an accident that we, our narrative, our story, which is written, of course, way later than the events it's imagining, that our story of receiving Torah in the desert is not an accident. It's part of this whole impulse against the culture of the ancient Near East. Where do we receive Torah? We don't receive it in Egypt, where there's Pharaoh and a glorification of the king and a, as a god and a glorification of the king's power and a glorification of death and a glorification of the pyramids, not, uh, not of the pyramids, the pyramids, the pyramids being a glorification, right, of the king. Monuments, monuments that we still are in awe of the fact that they are that big and that they're still here. That was the point was to make something seriously huge and that would last for a super long time. We're still really impressed by those monuments. That is not Israel, not Pharaoh, not those monuments, not the pyramids, not all those amazing things that Egypt was about, the chariots, the everything, not in Egypt. That's not where we got Torah. And we also didn't get Torah in Mesopotamia. We didn't get Torah in Canaan. We didn't get Torah in Mesopotamia, in, in the Holy Land. We didn't get Torah there. Why didn't we get Torah in Mesopotamia? It's the other place that glorifies power, that glorifies the king, that glorifies monuments, that glorifies war and conquering and becoming an empire. Mesopotamia was an empire and was always wanting to be an empire. Right? Whether it's the Babylonians, the Neo-Assyrians, they always wanted to be an empire and worked hard at it and were really good at it. That is not where we received Torah. Micha Goodman argues we received Torah where? In no man's land. In between the empires. In between the power of the king, of the monarch, as a representative of the god in between the places that glorified monuments, that glorified death, that glorified all of the things that ancient Israel was supposed to stand against. We don't glorify death, we glorify life. We have here a constitutional monarchy, which means it's a move towards democracy. And even though the priests have a special status, we know that the Torah was revealed in our story to everybody. There is a democratization that is happening in ancient Israel that is dafka between the great powers of the ancient Near East, and it comes as a protest in a way. Not, well, not a protest, but a, a revolution. That is, that is astonishing. Little tiny Israel really should have been looking to those other powers and saying, oh, we want to be like them. 
Look how much land they have. Look at their pyramids. Look at their palaces. How come we don't have, right? But that is not the move of ancient Israel. Ancient Israel takes a different direction and says, no, that is not the kind of society we want. That is not the kind of kingdom that we want. We want one where what is most important, what everybody understands, what everybody knows, what everybody follows is the law that says over and over and over again, take care of the most vulnerable among you. That is what the king needs to be about. That is what the priesthood needs to be about. That's what the magistrate is about. Justice, equity, it is about taking care of the widow and the orphan. It is about loving the stranger because y'all were there and you remember what that's like. And don't think for one second you're any different. You were slaves. You were nothing. This Torah, this instruction is what is supposed to be the dominant thing you glorify. Because as you glorify that, what are you glorifying? You're glorifying the power behind that. And that is, as Kaplan would say, the power that makes for justice, capital P and capital J, the power that makes for transformation, the power that makes for compassion, the power that makes for tzedakah. That is what you glorify in Israel. And that, Micha Goodman would argue, is nothing short of revolutionary. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.